0: So if you don't have a Bible, now's a good time to grab a Bible. Uh, We're going to be reading from the Bible quite a bit in a minute. Words will be on the screen, but it's good to read them on paper as well, to get used to reading along in a Bible. And uh, that way you can use the Bible at home. Uh, I always say as well, or I often say as well, that... Uh, If you have a Bible in front of you and you get bored of what I'm saying, which is probably 50-50, or you disagree with what I'm saying, at least you can read something good. And uh, no one's going to criticise you for it because it's the Bible. (laughs) So if I see someone avidly reading in a bit of the Bible I know is not what I'm speaking on, I'm not judging you. I am going to commend you afterwards. So we're continuing to examine and think about the the central part of Jesus' teaching. It's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We spend a lot of time looking at the Bible in this church. It's one of the things we do in the church. uh, Partly because we think it's really, really important. It's part of what Jesus came to do to teach us how to live. We are followers of Jesus. To be a Christian means to be a little Christ, to be a little version of Jesus. And that's what we're aiming for. A big way that we do that is to look at what Jesus taught. And the biggest uh, sustained block of teaching in the New Testament from Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually a summary of everything Jesus taught. It's a kind of condensed version of it. Uh, The analogy I've used is uh, like on uh, YouTube, uh, where if you Google a particular footballer, If you're not into this, you'll have to take my word for it. You'll get a five-minute highlights reel that summarises what it was to be that player. So I'm often uh, taking the boys aside and saying to them, I I want you to see what it was like to watch Glenn Hoddle when he played. Because you guys only see him on TV. Talking about football, you've got to understand this man was the best best midfield player I've ever seen. And I want to show you why. So then we watch little highlights footage. And they string together the essence of Glenn Hoddle. Or the essence of Ronaldinho or someone like that. And in this sermon is kind of the essence of what Jesus taught. When he's going around teaching people and preaching and using stories to teach, this is what he's teaching them. And he's really teaching what it means to be God's people in the world. To put it another way, he's, he's showing how God wants us to live. He's showing us who we are created to be, who you are created to be. This teaching is, in Jesus' words, the fulfilment of everything God has been doing and showing humanity. I spent a few weeks laying the foundation to help us understand that, and Heather's been doing that as well. It's a vision rooted in grace and humility. Everything else that comes after is rooted in grace and humility. Jesus begins the talk by saying, uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And everything else afterwards comes from that. His teaching's not designed, to put it another way, to mark one group as good and mark another group as bad and commend the good and condemn the bad. I think that's how we think about religious teachers. That they come and they say, yes, you're doing right because you're obeying the rules and you're doing wrong because you're not obeying the rules and you're good and you're bad and I'm dividing between the two of you. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's coming and saying, actually, if you want to understand everything else I'm saying, you've got to be humble. We have to accept that we don't live as God intends. We have to accept that we don't love God and others perfectly. If we spend our whole time judging other people, we'll never get anywhere with Jesus. Jesus Jesus's question is always, yes, and what about you? Whenever someone came to him and said, Jesus, look how bad this person is. Jesus would say, that's interesting, what about you? What's going on in your heart? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who come to him know they need mercy and forgiveness and help. If we're willing to accept that, he says, God will give us his kingdom. It's also rooted... His vision of humanity is rooted in the belief that the fundamental problem with the world, the problem of the human condition, to put it in a kind of soodish way, is not that we fail to keep a discrete set of rules. Jesus doesn't have a list of seven deadly sins or ten deadly sins and then a whole list of other non-deadly sins and then everything else is fine and if you manage to stay off the two naughty lists, you know, the kind of Santa Claus theology... If you stay off the naughty list, then you get the present. And if you get on the naughty list, then you don't. That doesn't describe what's wrong with the world very well. Jesus' view of humanity and what God wants for humanity is that our souls are sick. Well, he's not in any illusion. He knows that we do bad stuff. But he's more interested in why we do it. If we just focus on changing how we behave in a few areas... Two things happen. First of all, we look great. They come across somebody who's kept all the rules, they look impeccable, but you know secretly, because you know them well, that in their heart they're filled with nothing but bitterness and pride. That happens if you have a set of rules. Someone is well able to keep them, but inside they're not transformed. Jesus has a phrase for this later on in his teaching. He, he calls it like a whitewashed tomb. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about what that means. He means there's a grave there and somebody's painted it beautifully, but if you opened it up, there's nothing inside it but death. He saves that for religious people. That's how he describes religious people. Looking good on the outside and rotten within. He says what we need instead, every one of us, is to be healed from the inside. That will then change how we behave, but it will change how we behave because it changes who we are this is what god has always been pointing humanity towards and jesus says through me it's possible so having set up that big picture view of life i'm just summarizing this is the previously on slot. you know when you get much american dramas they're like previously on castle and then you get a flashback to the last five episodes so that you can catch up with what's going on now that's my previously previously on Phil. <laughs> Having set that big picture view of life, Jesus moves on to address some of the key areas where our soul sickness causes us to misuse and abuse each other. He picks up on some of the biggies where life goes wrong. And he says, I want to unpick this and understand what is going wrong in our hearts that makes us act like this. And the first one he looks at is personal anger, hatred and scorn. There you go, this is a happy uh, phrase. Uh, Personal anger, hatred and scorn. He identifies them as a problem, then he explains practically what it means to resist them. And that's what we're going to look at today. So, Joe asked me to put on the screen my lunchtime summary. Every week I give a lunchtime summary so that uh, if you remember nothing else, this is the one thing you can remember. It's slightly disconcerting that somebody's writing that down, because then it makes me think, what are they doing for the rest of the talk? But if you are writing it down, if you're trying to remember it, this is today's talk in two sentences. Okay, there's probably 20 words on the screen. This is everything Jesus teaches about anger, hatred and scorn in two sentences. Anger, hatred and scorn break our relationships and corrode our souls. Instead, God wants to make us people of peace and reconciliation. Anger, hatred and scorn will corrode your soul and break your relationships. Instead, God wants to make us people of peace and reconciliation. Anger, hatred, and scorn will break our relationships and corrode our souls. And instead, God wants to make us people of peace and of reconciliation. If you remember nothing else, remember that. We're going to read several bits from the Bible. Um, I'm going to get Obi to read some of them because I'm uh, struggling. Uh, I've included some readings from the Old Testament, the writings that came before Jesus, to show that Jesus' vision for humanity is rooted in our understanding of who God really is. You see, there's a danger with Jesus' teaching, that actually he's building on lots of people who know an awful lot about who God is. And if you miss that, then we, we can end up just introducing a new set of rules. And I want to show you that actually what Jesus is teaching about people is rooted in what he believes about God. But God is is different sometimes from how we think he is. And that changes who we should be. I've also included some layer writings from Jesus' early followers and family reflecting what it means to live this out in practice. So I'm going to get Obi's going to come and read to us a few verses from the Old Testament. Don't worry about finding them because we're going to move between four or five of them very quickly. Uh, But I wanted to show you that this is, I'm not making this up. This genuinely is what the Old Testament teaches about God.
1: Uh, yeah that one Um, but you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding love then Joel 2.13 return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity Jonah 4.2 He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made.
0: Thanks, Abby. No, no, I'll do that one now.
1: Right. Thanks, Abby. Yes.
0: Heather's going to come and read to us from uh, Matthew 5. So I'm going to get you to find this in your Bibles, if you can. If you're not able to hold a Bible, don't worry, that's fine, it's on the screen. If you're looking for it in a Bible, it's on page 969, in the ones from the back. Uh, But it's Matthew 5 and verse 21.
2: You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny.
0: Thanks, Heather. Uh, Yeah, thanks. Okay, then I'm going to read from Ephesians 4. Um, Don't worry about finding this. Keep your fingers in Matthew. That's where I'm actually going to be preaching from. This is St. Paul reflecting on what Jesus meant. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as as in Christ God forgave you. And this is Jesus' brother James. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Amen, this is the word of God. So Let's turn back to Matthew if you've been flicking through, contrary to what I said. Jesus begins his ethical teaching with... Uh, The least controversial rule taught by the religious rulers of his day. Don't murder. Now, I think, uh, I'm imagining that uh, a lot of us have grown up with different understandings of certain rules of life. Some of us will have grown up with whether or not it was right to wear a hat in public or in church, and there are various other things that uh, we agree or disagree about. I'm pretty sure that all of us can get on board with the command, don't murder. Almost every human society has come up with a form of this. It's one of the prerequisites for anyone living with anyone else. You've got to be able to trust that they're not going to murder you. Jesus starts from this non-controversial premise, this uh, easy-to-accept premise, and he builds from there. You see, Jesus is asking a question that I think we... Should ask as well, which is, is God's vision for who we should be really limited to not killing each other? I mean, that's a pretty minimalistic vision of human goodness, isn't it? My vision for my kids certainly includes that they not kill each other. Now that is a a definite no-no in our house. Uh, there'd be no murder, but it's not limited to that. If you were to say to me, Phil, what is it you want for Ben and Sam and Abigail when they grow up? I probably wouldn't lead with saying, "Well, my main desire for them, what I want for their lives, is that they should not kill anyone." I mean, I do want that, but, but I, I want them to be polite and kind. You know, there's lots of stuff in addition to that that I, I quite like. You know, I'd like them to be better people than just non-murderers. We might grant that uh, not murdering is necessary for human beings to flourish. It's necessary for good societies to flourish. But it's not sufficient as a guiding principle. It's not sufficient to express what we're created to be. I actually want to say, even the simple command to murder can be ineffective and unjust. What do I mean by that? Well, it can be ineffective because we find ways to make exceptions. Human societies find ways to make exceptions. Every society finds a different way, and every society justifies the way that it has found, and usually pours scorn on all the societies that have gone before. Okay, and this isn't true just true in history; it's true now. We. Find ways of excusing the ending of particular human life by private individuals and make it lawful. If we go through history, we can think about all the different ways that this has happened, or some of them. It's been justified on the basis of race or ethnicity. Some people are simply too black or too Jewish, and therefore the rule doesn't apply. Societies have concluded that, Western societies, to our great shame. Some people have uh, concluded on the basis of age. Unborn children are just too young to be protected by the law. So it's reasonable and lawful to end their lives. It's been justified on the basis of disability. These people are not really worthy of protection by the law. And so we will find a way of making sure they're not born at all, or in previous generations, ending their lives once they were born. Now I'm giving these as illustrations just to show that actually the command to murder is not as easy to keep as we not to murder is not as easy to keep as we think. Every generation in society starts to find ways to make exceptions. The command not to murder, taken on its own, can also be unjust. This comes out of our experience in the criminal justice system. Um, the rich and well educated and powerful find easy and lawful ways to destroy people without killing them. I have this joke that I tell, it's not funny but I tell it anyway because that's the case with most of my jokes, uh, that the difference between my career as a commercial barrister and Heather's career as a criminal barrister is simply that my criminals were more successful than hers. Because they found ways to get away with it. By contrast, Heather used to deal, you know, I would deal with multi-millionaire, I'm going to make this so general that I can't be sued, Multi-millionaires who are involved in construction projects around the world, to whom certain events happen where they are always questions about whether they've bribed government officials and are defrauding their insurance companies of millions of dollars, and no one ever proves anything. And there are so many rich lawyers being paid that no one can ever prove anything, but everyone knows deep down that there's something going on. None of you will be able to find out which client I'm talking about. It wasn't actually my client in that case. By contrast, Heather would deal with kids coming off estates in East London. You know, she used to uh, go to the uh, Inner London uh, Magistrates Court on a Saturday morning for the emergency arraignments of, of those who'd been arrested on a Friday night and find it was full of young people who had never known anything except carrying a knife. And to carry a knife was just a fact of life. Now, the law rewarded one criminal... And punished another, and yet you ask me which is more morally culpable for their actions. I would have said the guy I was dealing with. Not the child who'd never known anything different, but had ended up stabbing someone. It's not to excuse one and condemn the other. It's to say that there's something going on here that we need to get below the surface of. Jesus pierces to the heart of this. He says, why is it that we always find ways to make exceptions? And why is it that we feel that the commercial criminal, the rich criminal who gets away with it, is as culpable or more culpable than the poor child who has ended up killing someone? Why is it? What does that tell us about who we're created to be and what God wants for us? He uses hyperbole and stark, exaggerated languages. This is something you're going to have to get used to if you start reading Jesus. And I suggest you do, because he's the most, moral, the most influential moral teacher in history. He uses these extraordinary images. I mean, later on in the sermon, he's going to say, if you see something and it makes you feel, makes you treat people badly, I want you to pluck out your eye. And we're going to come to that later. You know, he's not literally saying that everybody ought to be walking around with one eye. What he's saying is, I think you should take this seriously. And he uses this extraordinary language to break people out of their complacency and make them think. He explains that murder is not simply the outward taking of a human life. It is a symptom of a human heart that is sick. That this kind of most grievous of human actions is actually the symptom of something inside us. People kill because they're angry with someone, or because they come to scorn or despise them, and so believe that they can and should be sacrificed. Now, I read a, I read a lot of Agatha Christie books. I can't remember how many I'm up to now, 60-something. Uh, it's a hobby of mine, and because I have a slight OCD, I, once I'd started reading them, I now have to read every single one. Um, Fortunately, I'm within, I think, five or six of reading everything she ever wrote as Agatha Christie. And uh, that didn't even get a woo. I mean, honestly, that's a, how many of you can say that? How many of you can say that you've read everything that Agatha Christie ever wrote? I mean, I mean, I feel like I'm not getting enough credit for this. If I'm publishing papers about this, I'd be getting plaudits from all over the place. I, I can tell you, having read the range of Agatha Christie murder, murder fiction, this is, this is at least right in Agatha Christie's mind, and it's right in our experience of the criminal justice system, that people kill for those reasons. Right? Either somebody is, is so angry with someone, they feel like it's reasonable to take their life, or they regard them, their life, the other person's life, as less important than the thing they're trying to get. So in the classic Agatha Christie, it's an inheritance. There's shed loads of money coming, and so this person's life is less important than all the money. I despise them, and I'm going to kill them, and then I will get Aunt Nora's inheritance. The first step towards murder in a brawl is the anger of those who've been offended. The first step towards the ending of human life on the basis of race, gender, age or disability is that one group of people is despised and scorned as less than human. Right? If anything, the 20th century teaches that. Right? This, has been, this, this premise, Jesus' teaching here has been tested to destruction and found to be true. Right? That's how Nazi Germany happens, how the Holocaust happens, is that you have one group of people who are considered less than human and therefore it's okay. Jesus diagnoses with startling clarity the evils of the 20th century. It's this problem of the heart that God cares about and wants to fix. You see, human courts can't touch this. Or our courts can only look at the outside, but God looks on the heart. Now that's actually quite sobering. Because that means that God looks on the heart of someone who gets away with it, or who controls their actions so they never act on it. God looks at the heart of someone who's nursing personal anger at a friend or enemy. When he looks on the heart of someone who despises another or scorns them, considering them disposable, God sees the same sickness of soul that produces murder. In a sense, Jesus is picturing God as a physician, as a a doctor. And he's saying, sometimes we have patients who present themselves where the disease has gone so far... That it's produced all of these symptoms. Sometimes we can see the first couple. But it's the same disease that needs treating. Let's pause for a moment. Which of us can say that this doesn't apply to us? Speak to myself. See if you identify with it. Can I truly say That I have never been consumed with anger over some personal slight. I know what my wife would say if I asked her whether I had been consumed with anger over some personal slight. Or behaved in a dismissive and scornful way towards other people. Can I really say that? I have no business condemning others. Jesus insists that I look at myself. This is the attitude Jesus critiques. His description of someone shouting raka, a slightly odd Aramaic saying, or fool, is a picture of someone who despises others and dismisses them because of their moral qualities. They're not a good person. Or their intellectual qualities. They're just too thick for consideration. Someone who's contemptuous of another person or enraged at them. Can I honestly say that I have never treated another or looked at another and dismissed them in this way or become enraged at them? Jesus says such attitudes are what brings God's judgment because they are the seeds that grow to destroy relationships. In the end, there are only two laws. There is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there is another which is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And this attitude of despising and of anger destroys those relationships that underpin that rule. Murder is just the most extreme example, it's rooted in a sickness in my heart. The roots of pain and suffering for others and for ourselves. This is very far from the way we're, we're told to understand God. I, I, I picked those verses for Obie to read and they went on and on. I think I picked five or six in the end. But I actually had to whittle down my list because it's written all over the Old Testament. That, that, for those of you who are Old Testament readers, and I suggest you will become at some point... Uh, That passage from Jonah is the key to understanding the book of Jonah. The reason why Jonah runs away in the story is because he's so convinced that God is caring and loving and compassionate that he doesn't want him to forgive Jonah's enemies. Jonah is so consumed with anger and hatred towards a group of people that he doesn't want to tell them about God because he knows that God will love them. In the end, you have this weird conversation with Jonah and God, where Jonah says, "Look, I ran away because I knew you'd do this. I knew you would forgive them. I knew you would show them love and grace. I knew you were like this. It's unbelievable. I was so convinced that you are good and compassionate and loving. That I, but it's them." And God's like, "Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I could preach the whole book of Jonah to you." The way that we treat others is very far from the way we're told to understand God. This is the this is the summary verse, uh, I would say. Uh, yeah, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. You know, that's how you see God. Perhaps you have a picture of God that you've grown up with that He is He's on a He's on a hair trigger. You know, uh, and I love watching detective dramas on TV. And in the modern detective dramas, you occasionally see this moment where there's a sniper rifle pointing, and a red dot appears on someone. And like, you're like oh, they're right on the edge. They're right on the edge. There's someone there. He's got his hand on the trigger. They could, they could die at any minute. And I think that's how we see God. We're like, he's got his finger on the trigger. I could die at any minute. The red dots on my heart. I better make sure I don't take something wrong. Better make sure I don't do something wrong. If I do, God's got his finger on the trigger and he's ready. And Jesus is saying no. And the Old Testament says, no, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. You have to work really, really hard to make God angry. You have to work really hard to make God angry. He's really slow to get angry. He puts up with a lot. When God does get angry, and I read through every reference to God getting angry in the Old Testament, let me tell you, they fall into two camps. One is where human beings are horrible and mistreat each other. The other is where they start to set up systems and worship gods, which is the same thing really, that will lead them to mistreat each other. God is slow to anger. He has compassion on all he has made. God does not despise anyone. Anyone. Say it again, anyone. Not because I've lost my place in my notes, because I want you to understand, I want us to understand this. God has compassion on all He has made black, white, maroon, rich, poor, born, unborn, able bodied, differently able, male, female, clever, stupid, catty, or kind. God does not despise people. He does not despise people. My life is only as important as yours, and your life is only as important as a Cambodian's, it's only as important as a Nigerian's, it's only as important as an Eskimo's, and that importance is priceless. Each one of them is priceless to God. God does not scorn. He doesn't despise. He's rich in love. And when he's wronged, he's quick to forgive, even when it costs him. This was Jonah's problem. So why why must you insist on forgiving people? Jesus said this, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus wants us to see others like this. You and I were created to be like God. That's what it says in the beginning, in the first chapters of Genesis, when the kind of archetypal story of humanity, humanity is made to be in God's image. We are made to be gracious and compassionate. Sorry. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, good to all and having compassion on all God has made. That's who you're created to be. What does this mean in practice? First of all, we need God's spirit to work in us. If you're sitting there and thinking, yes, I want that. It expresses the desire of my heart. That's who I want to be. That's what I think people created to be. To be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Great. That's really good news. Here's the bad news. I'm afraid you can't. But St. Augustine said, uh, If no human being can tame the tongue, we must take refuge in God who can tame it. We can't do this. We can't make ourselves this. this is not, I'm not urging you to make yourself different. You can't. I can't. What we can do is come to God who can make us different. Love, patience and kindness come through God working in us to transform us from the inside. In other words, we need to ask God to change how we see people and respond to them. That is as simple as saying, pick a name of somebody who's not in the church, Father God, I'm conscious that when I see Levi, no, Levi's, no. Maybe because I'm wearing jeans, I don't know. When I see Levi, I I know that I'm unkind to him, I'm dismissive towards him. Please would you change the way I see him. We need to consciously accept in prayer that we have a problem and ask the Spirit to transform us. Then we need to work with him to do it. Right, so one mistake people made is to think, if only we worked harder, we'd be better. The other mistake is to think, well, I'm just going to sit back then. Thank you, God. He kind of pictures God on this cloud with a lightning bolt. He's just sharpening it. On the lightning bolt is graciousness, patience. You know, I think, zap me now. Uh, I, I come across this uh, quite often. You know, the kind of zap me now mentality. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be made patient, and will you hurry up about it? God says, well, I will work with you to do it. I will do it, but I want you to work with me as well.
2: Right?
0: Central way we work with God in this, and this is what Jesus says, is to proactively pursue reconciliation. To seek out both friends and enemies and try to make peace. It applies to both friends and enemies. I don't have time this morning. I was going to do a what about section. I might do it on my blog. Uh, you, know, what the, you know, what about questions? What about someone who's really mean to me? What about, what about, what about... Jesus has one example, he says, brothers and sisters, you know, those who are closest to you, other Christians. And then he says, no enemies, those you really don't like. So, well, okay. It's hard. A pride doesn't like it. It's especially hard when we feel like we are not the ones who are most to blame. There's a certain very beautiful person I argue with quite a lot. Not quite a lot, but occasionally. I'm saying that partly because I know people put us on a pedestal and I don't want you to do that, right? I find it really difficult to apologise if I feel like she's done something wrong first. And vice versa. Okay? It's talking like about sin in my own heart. And I'm sat there in the living room with this unnamed stunner. thinking, I don't want to say sorry because i want her to say sorry if she says sorry then of course i'll do it immediately jesus yeah absolutely you know if she takes the first step if he takes the first step we'll be tempted to wait for them to make the first move i'll say sorry if he does that's not what jesus says so it doesn't matter what who the other person is or what they've done to us we can't change that i can't change them they might never say sorry now, as it happens, the person with whom I'm arguing is filled with graciousness and compassion. She's slow to anger and she's quick, rich in love. So she almost certainly beats me to the punch. Which is shame on me. There are people where you can't change. They might never see that they are actually behaving like an obnoxious, selfish Burke. I can't change them. I can't affect them. What I can affect is me. I can work towards peace and reconciliation, even when they don't. Why? Because this is who God is. This is what God has done for me. This is how God shows his love for us, Paul says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we should do the same. Apply this very quickly and then we're going to take communion. If you've been stung what Jesus says, if something that I've brought out of this has made you think, oh, I know that's me, then there is total forgiveness and healing in, in him. Jesus himself said, it's John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The point about this is not to make you feel guilty and leave you there, but that the world should be saved through him. There is complete forgiveness and healing and grace for all who will come to Christ for it. It doesn't matter what you've done. His grace and love is enough to cover every human failure. So my first application is if you know this is you, come and receive forgiveness and grace and he'll restore, restore your soul. Second, why not spend a few minutes, we're actually going to have a, a couple of minutes silence in a minute, or with gentle music playing, Spend no time asking God if there's anyone you've offended or need to make peace with. And as Christians, we can be so hot on different cultural sins. Like we can be hot on you know, sex and uh, idolatry and this and this and this. The first thing Jesus says, the first thing, make peace. Before you ask anything else of God, I'll ask you if there's someone you need to make peace with. Then seek reconciliation. Do it this afternoon. Third, let's be people who are conscious of the way we think about others and talk about them. Every single person is created in the image of God and is loved by God. He has compassion on all he has made. When you find someone and you're conscious you find it hard not to dismiss them or belittle them or you find that they make you angry, just take a moment. Silently ask God to help you to see them as he does and then seek peace. Anger, hatred and scorn break our relationships and corrode our souls. But God wants to make us people of peace and reconciliation. Pray, come, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Make this real for us, especially as we come and take communion. We just pray, Lord, that you would make this really real for us. We want to be little crosses. Come, Holy Spirit. I'm just going to take a few minutes, some gentle music playing. Just encourage you to ask God if there's something he wants to speak to you about. And then we're going to take communion together.